0: What's up, everybody? It's Kevin Teal from Pocono Raceway here, and we are back for another episode of the Pocono Raceway podcast. We're celebrating all things 50th anniversary of the Tricky Triangle this year, and we have a special episode for you guys today. And we're going to hop right to it because we talked to Darrell Waltrip. Obviously, he won here four times, champion of the sport, NASCAR Hall of Famer, legend in every uh, aspect of the word. Uh, so we're, we had a great conversation with DW. He told a lot of fun stories, uh, and a lot of his memories of racing here at Pocono Raceway. So let's celebrate 50 years of the Tricky Triangle with Daryl Waltrip and hop right into the episode here. Hope you guys enjoy our conversation with DW. Daryl, thank you again for taking the time today. Uh, a lot of successful runs at Pocono Raceway over your, uh, career here, uh, before we get into any of the specific races, I want to know, what was your initial impression of this place? Because there was a whole uh, – th- this place was so much different than any other
1: racetrack that you guys went to. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I had a pretty good knack for flat racetracks. I, I enjoyed Pocono because you had those really, really long straightaways. And you've got the front straightaway that goes into that pretty fast first turn. It's pretty – you know, got a little banking to it. You get through there pretty good. You go across the tunnel, a little short shoot into the third turn. It leads out on the front straightaway. So I, I think it was just the, the difference in the diff, – you know, the track was different. The turns were all different. The straightaways were long. The straightaways were fast. Took a lot of finesse. Uh, and that was kind of my forte. Uh, so I, I kind of used my road course experience, my short track experience, and my super speedway experience. And, and it worked out pretty well at Pocono. So, a very, very interesting, very, very different track. You know, what's it say on the wall? Where's turn four? Well, there is no turn four. So, anyway, uh, I've always always enjoyed racing there. Uh, the Mattiolis were great friends of Stevie and I. We see them in Nantucket a lot. Uh, I won, I think, the Vanskoy Diamond 500. They got a big old chunk of coal. And I told the doc, I said, maybe one day I'll be a Diamond. And uh, so... I just always like "Poking." It was one of my favorite tracks.
2: And actually, to hit on that too, we'll we'll uh, get right into the Mattioli family and and kind of their impact. You know, not necessarily well, not just on your career, but obviously on motorsports in general. Um, tell us a little stories that you have about Doc and Doc Rose, and kind of uh, you know what your friendship was like, and what they've meant to the racing community overall.
1: Now, this this is a funny story. Okay, so you have to take it for what it is but jerry carroll and i were working on the kentucky speedway and uh and and i and people were saying you need to go talk to the Mattioli's. maybe you could you know team up with them they've got two races they're six weeks apart you know maybe you could work a deal to get one of those races to move to kentucky just before kentucky had a cup race so jerry carroll goes up to pocono meets with doc and he's Doc's showing them around the facility and, and of course, we're building a brand new racetrack. So everything has to be perfect. And Doc takes him into a warehouse up there and there were 50 used toilets, 50 used commode. And Doc showed him, he said, look, we're gonna install all these around the track. What do you think? And he was so proud of those 50 used commodes. And here Jerry Carroll is trying to you know, work a deal with the, the Mattiolis to get one of their races to move to Kentucky. And Doc wants to show him the 50 used commodes that he had bought at some auction somewhere that he was going to install at the racetrack. And so that was, that was, but that was, the Mattiolis were practical people. Uh, that That's why Bill French loved them. Uh, they, they had a great racetrack kind of out in the middle of nowhere uh, with in a different shape. And I think Bill French really, I think he liked the people that, thought outside the box, maybe went things a little bit differently, and certainly the Mattiolis were famous for that. I think uh, – what was the guy that built that racetrack? Pa- pa- Paleo or Patio or whatever his name was. Built that track. He built Texas. He built three or four tracks at the same time. Michigan. Uh, but the Mattiolis ended up with it. Uh, and, and how or why they ever thought they could promote a race or why they thought they would be good promoters, uh, I'm not sure, but they were people loved them rose and Doc, they loved them uh, and I think that's what made the track successful was those relationships not with not just with Bill France uh, but with all the drivers and the competitors and mostly the fans that go there it's it's kind of a it's a it's a funny place you go there and that infield is packed and uh, and that's what you want and the grandstands are packed so uh, they've had great success even though the race are almost back to back I think you're only six weeks difference from the spring to the to the summer race, and the track is so different from one race to the next. Uh, but it just took it. Just, it took people like Doc and, and and Rose to make it work, and they were able to. They were able to do it.
2: And, and to that point, to elaborate more on just Doc and Doc Rose, obviously, right? The majority of us are on this call still work for the family, still a family run company after all these years. And this year, we're celebrating 50 years of racing on the Tricky Triangle. Our first race was the uh, USAC Indy Car race back in '71. Uh, that actually Roger Penske won. That was his first IndyCar race. So, talking about the prestige of 50 years for a racing venue, a place that you've worked at, ran at, won at, and then of course now have been in the broadcast booth. Uh, what is the impact of motorsports for a place like Pocono Raceway in your mind?
1: Well, when you you know you look at the area, uh, Trenton's not far too too far away. One of the I think one of the turns is actually uh, based off of one of the turns at Trenton Nuns. Uh, there's other race tracks that are in the area. But but that super speedway when they ran the modifieds on the three quarter mile on the front straightaway there that was an exciting event in the beginning, uh, the Indy cars, and certainly when the stock cars came to town that, that that created a huge amount of interest. So I think there that there there was a, that track was needed. Uh, it was in a, it was in a part of the country where we didn't have a lot of races. We didn't have as uh, uh, Watkins Glen or New Hampshire or some of the tracks are in that area now. And that track was really, really needed for the growth of NASCAR. So I think that was one of the reasons why Bill France and Bill France Jr. both uh, thought so much of the Mattiolis is they hung in there through some tough times and made that track work at a time when we really needed them more than, than, than they needed us. So uh, it, it worked out really well for everybody.
0: I want to jump back into your career here a little bit um, at Pocono, and I've, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think believe, believe it was your second win here in 1981 where you won the race for Junior Johnson, but you weren't the first car to pull into victory lane that afternoon. Uh, <laughs> uh, what what happened that
1: day? Because uh, that was a race you ended up winning from the pole. It was a great day for you, but uh, someone else ended up pulling in victory lane first. Well, it was Kale, and, of course, you know, Kale left Junior's, uh, operation went down MC Anderson. And, uh, it, when, when the checkered flag waved kill was right in front of me, but kill was on the tail end of the lead lap. He was about to passing. me would have been lapped down, but we come off a corner. They waved the checkered flag. Kill says I won the race. They put his car, in. he drives his car into victory struggle and he won't come out and, and everybody's trying to tell him kill. You didn't win this race. Yes, sir, buddy. <laughs> it's my race. I won this race. He knew he didn't win it, but nonetheless. Finally, it came, push came to shove, and he said, "Kale, either pull the car out, or we're going to get a wrecker and tow it out. So he finally yielded, and he pulled the car out, and I pulled in. But it was just it, – it, and there was so much – back in that era uh, with, with the, the way scoring was, it was so easy, easy to get a guy on the tail end of the lead lap or even and sometimes even, even a lap down. Uh, would get confused with the leaders and who the leader was and who the race winner was. I happened to be a couple of three times at different venues. But it was easy to do, and, uh, and that was just one of those cases where I think if it had been any other anybody else other than me in the 11 car, Kale might have yielded a little quicker. But he fought hard and he fought long. But they finally said, tow it, pull it out or we're going to tow it out. So he pulled it out and I pulled in.
0: I love it. I love it. All that matters is that you got there eventually. (laughs) All that matters.
1: (laughs) That W goes in my column.
0: (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, I want to fast forward a decade here uh, to your next win at the Raceway, which came in 1991. Uh, That was driving for yourself. um, To to win here in your own equipment, which we were able to do twice, did that in 91 and uh, in 92. Um, how special was that, especially knowing just how much it took mechanically to get around this place, both, you know,
1: mechanically and as a driver? Yeah, I, I, think, I think what a lot of people maybe don't realize or never thought about is it takes one kind of setup to go fast for a lap or two. It takes a totally different setup to go fast for 500 miles. And I really prided myself in knowing what I needed in my car for my car to be good in the race. Not just for one lap or two laps, 10 laps, but for 50 miles, 100 miles, and 500 miles at the end of the day. So uh, we had a a pretty nice setup that we had developed for that track. Uh, It worked when I drove for Junior, it worked when I drove for myself. And um, I think the interesting thing about that race is how different that racetrack is from the spring, the first race to the second race. It's only a few weeks apart but all that rubber that's put down in that first race and then the, the heat and the temp goes up a little bit and it just changes that track dramatically. So you have to have a little bit different setup first race to second race. We were able to develop a setup that worked both pretty good at both of them. Uh, I, I guess the hardest thing for me was, the, the race I got in, I think it was 92 and I got into, uh, got into Davey Allison uh, on the tunnel turn and, uh, I didn't, it didn't, it seemed, we just bumped. It wasn't even a hard lick or it wasn't like I ran over him. We just bumped. He cut in front of me and I happened to clip him. And when I came back around, I saw Davey's car was destroyed and the car had gone off the track, hit that dirt bank into that guardrail and went flipping down through there. And, uh, I, I, I was devastated because I had no idea that that could get that that better accident could happen on that short shoot. But but anyway, I went on and I won that race, and um, and I'm glad I did because it, got me, it gave me a chance to apologize to Davey for what happened. Uh, but also, uh, I think about just so many things. I've seen every great driver. I saw Richard Petty crash big time there in the tunnel turn. Bobby Allison wrecked tu- in the tunnel turn. Jeff Gordon loses his brakes going into turn one. Dale Earnhardt loses Tim Richmond. Uh, I think most every driver at some point in his career – has had a pretty major accident at that track. That doesn't. That, that's not to say it's a good track or a bad track. It just shows you how fast those straightaways are, how long those straightaways are, how fast you enter the corners, and how quickly things can go wrong. So that uh, I, I was one of the things I, I respected that track. We, when we started shifting gears there, uh, that had never been done before, and we were, were listening to qualifying one day, and I don't remember who it was. Maybe it's Jeff Bodine, Bill, I don't remember. They came off turn four, three, come down to the front straight, heard them shift the gear. I said, man, did you hear that? I think he shift gears. And all of a sudden, everybody was shifting gears. Well, I, I wasn't real good at that. When I went into turn one at 200 miles an hour, I wanted both hands on the wheel. And so I never was real keen on shifting at Pocono. A lot of people did and certainly it paid off for a lot of people. But uh, I was hesitant to do that. And I'll tell you a quick story. So I'm telling Hammond, I said, I I just don't feel comfortable letting go of the wheel going down into turn one. That's a tough corner. He said, what if we fix you an air shifter? I said, what? Yeah, you just hit a button, it'll shift itself. I said, you got to be kidding. You can do that. He said, I think we can. So we came up with this air shifter. And I hit a button, and I'd be going down a straightaway and get down to turn one. I hit a button and shift up my third gear. It worked out pretty well until we got in the race. And every time I'd hit a bump, it'd shift the gears. Every time I'd car move a little bit or bounce a little bit, it'd shift into third gear. And so that was a great idea and it served a purpose. But in the end, it ended up biting us because uh, it, it was so sensitive that every time I'd hit a bump or every time something, the car'd move a little bit, it'd shift into third gear. And I couldn't do anything about it. And uh, and I think we actually blew an engine uh, messing around with the air shifter. But just so many things, big brakes, you got to have big brakes, you got to be able to slow down, you got those long pit road, you got to get in off of turn three, you got to dive on pit road at 190 miles an hour. <clears throat> Just a fun racetrack, very challenging uh, with a lot of issues.
2: I was going to say with that, with that, I mean, you're very, an elite company obviously in your career, um, but elite company in terms of Pocono status, right? You race in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Um, yep. So talk a little bit about your transition between the cars from the 70s, 80s, 90s, as the car and technology and safety started to improve, shifting was varying, you know, different ratios that you were running on gears. So how hard was it to basically readjust yourself? It felt, feels like every seven, eight years here.
1: Yeah, I, look, I think I won a lot of races because of the KISS principle. I kept it pretty simple. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't pride myself as being the smartest guy that ever drove a race car, but I knew what worked and what didn't work. And, uh, I, I, beat Dale Earnhardt there in I don't know, 91, maybe it was, and he was shifting gears. I never shifted all day long. A couple of things happen when you shift gears. First of all, you burn more fuel and that race inevitably will come down to a fuel mileage race. So I, I, I tried to not get myself in a box to where I had to shift to go fast. I tried to set my car up and I tried a driving style that I could leave the car in fourth gear, uh, lug around the track a little bit in some places, but it helped the heck out of my fuel mileage. And that's what won that race a couple of times. So uh, I, I just never was a big fan of shifting. Uh, they made a rule, I think, to try to keep the guys from it. But, you you know, once you've done it and if you've been successful by doing it, get that's how you that, that's how you had success at that track, you're going to figure out a way to do it. But it just never was in my wheelhouse. It's just something I wasn't comfortable with.
2: Go ahead, Jack.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask about the transition then from driving this place to commentating here. Because you know what it takes behind the wheel. And so you see everyone else trying to do it. And then how are you able to relay that knowledge uh, and kind of analyze what everyone else on the track was doing and try to figure out how each of them was trying to get through this track?
1: Now, you're going to get mad at me, and that's okay because I don't have to come up there anymore. But that, sometimes that race can be pretty boring. Uh, it's a big racetrack, three different turns, a lot of strategy, a lot of things go on during that race, and the cars get really strung out. And so there's, a, there's and it's 500 miles. And so there's points in that race when there really wasn't a lot to talk about. That's where I think I excelled. Because in those points of a race where maybe it wasn't the most exciting action on the racetrack, you could talk about strategy, what the driver was trying to do, what the team was trying, what the crew chief. You 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 tried to bring all the elements. It it's not just the driver, it's not just the car. It's the driver, the car, the crew chief, the strategy, when you pit, what do you do when you pit? Those were all things were important. And always, just always every time I start a race here. My first thought was fuel mileage because I can't tell you how many races I ended up either winning or being right near the front because I could get a little bit better fuel mileage than some of the other guys could. And so, um, I, you know, I, I, the, the finish of those races are always exciting. They bunch the field up. You got everybody going down in turn one, three or four wide. Uh, you know, the guy on the bottom, the guy on the outside, go down the tunnel turn or three or four wide. Somebody, somebody's got to give come over to turn three, three or four wide, something's got to give. Uh, but, and that's, that's exciting, and that's what fans come to see. But there are times during that race when you have to rely on your experience and things that you've done that made you successful there and try to sell that to the people that are watching at home to keep them engaged, keep them involved, keep them watching until the action gets good on the track.
2: I was going to say that to bring back the hype, completely agree with you for the 500 miles. Yes, things got strung out. We went to 400 miles. And then last year, we did it with no fans. This year, we're doing it with fans. Back-to-back doubleheaders, 325-miler on Saturday, 350-miler on Sunday. From a commentator, and you don't just tell me, what's your thought in general? Forget commentating what, as a race person and a person in this industry. What do you think about a back-to-back doubleheader for the Cup Series?
1: Well, it's never been done. So I don't know what I think. <laughs> I'm just to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think for that race – and that track, it makes sense because the races were so close together. What are you, 500 miles in um, in May or whatever it was, and you turn right around 500 miles in July, so really close together. So it makes sense to do it that way. But let me tell you, not having fans in the stands during a race, there was something about – you didn't realize it till they weren't there. But the energy and knowing that the fans were watching and knowing that they're – they're pulling for you, and you got your fans that are for you and other fans that are against you. Not having that element, not having that, that going on during a race really took a lot away from the race, I thought. Uh, I, it was almost like you were practicing. You were there all by yourself. You're just practicing. There are no fans in the stand. Certainly, you know, you, somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. But you have to have those fans, and you have to have that energy. And you got to have those people booing you and cheering you and pulling for you. And, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if – I think most drivers will tell you they could feel that. They could feel that energy. And they could also feel when it wasn't there. So to having a back-to-back event I think is a great idea. It hadn't been done. Uh, and we'll see how it turns out. I think, it, I think it's going to be a real success. Uh, I think you get two races in one weekend. It doesn't get any better than that. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how the fans react to it. So I, I think it's a great idea. Try it and see what happens. Yeah, so I
0: know we spoke a couple of years ago uh, as you were getting ready to talk about or to commentate your last race for Fox back in 2019. And one of those things that came up was uh, your last top ten for, uh, for your career ended up being here at Pocono driving for DEI, uh, filling in for Steve Park in that number one car. How special of a day was that for you? Uh, you ended up coming home sixth that day in 1998. Um, to go out there and prove that you still had it, not just to yourself, but to fans watching who may have missed the real peak of your career, how special of a day and of a weekend was that for you?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the hardest things that I had to deal with was the last two or three years of my career. Uh, I had been, I'd, I'd been on top i i I was the most probably one of the most dominant drivers in the sport from the late seventies to the early nineties. and then all of a sudden I didn't just slide down the other side slowly. I fell. I mean, I went to the top and then I fell. And so I didn't get the results that that i that I wanted. I, I had my own team, and uh it was sucking I, I was spending all the money I had, and that wasn't enough. And so my own team was not that great. Uh, But then Dale called me and asked me to drive that one car, and that was a breath of fresh air. Uh, When I got in that one car, I didn't have to worry about paying the bills. I didn't have to worry about the motors, the cars, or anything else. I just had to be the driver. And uh, that's what Dale hired me to do, and that's what I did. That day was so, so special. Um, To be able to lead that race late, have a chance at winning late, uh, it, it 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 was the best. Me and Philippe Lopez came up with a strategy. It worked almost to perfection, not quite almost, but to walk out of there that day with a top 10 finish, driving for Dale, one of my big rivals, uh, at a track I loved, uh, that, that, that really uh, put a lot of pep in my step. Uh, we went to Pocono, had a very similar run there. We went to several races in that one car where I had a lot of success. And that really, it made me feel better. I don't know if the fans, Maybe they realized or maybe they didn't care or maybe it was too late for me to recover from some of the disasters I'd had in my career. But it made me feel better. It made me know that you give me the right car with the right people and I could still get the job done. And that was really what was important to me.
2: In your opinion, um, the final question for you, there's been a lot of drivers who have had success at Pocono, uh, but not everybody, not everyone's been able to figure this place out. So Mm -hmm. through your career, Who, in your mind, give me the top three, and you can include yourself. Don't worry. We're not going to judge based on ego. Who are the top three guys you saw get around this place that you raced against?
1: Well, David Pearson was my hero. And so anytime, and he drove that 21 car, and anytime I could compete with David, a lot of times being in the same lap with David, I I felt like I had accomplished a lot. So, So David was great at that racetrack. And, uh, and, and and certainly uh, a guy that just blew me away, and, and, and it was typical Tim Richmond style. I'm not saying he's the greatest guy that ever drove there, but he was one of the bravest guys that ever drove there. But uh, David Pearson, Tim Richmond, and uh, Cale was pretty good there. Bobby was pretty good there. Rich was pretty good there. Baker was pretty good there. But I think if I had to say my top three, it would be Pearson, uh, probably Cale, and probably Tim Richmond. Those were three of the best I ever raced with. Uh,
2: that that wrapped it up, but I'd have well, no, it doesn't wrap it up because now I have a follow up. You mentioned Tim, um, so one thing that we're doing is we're getting uh, pretty much the key players towards the end of that 1986 Summer 500 together. We're getting commentators, we're getting Mr. H, we're getting Ricky, we're getting Jeff. Hopefully, Ricky and Jeff um, to come on to talk about that race. I mean, besides the uh, the old spin and win with uh, Je- Jeremy Mayfield knocking Dale out of the way to win that race. <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that 86 summer 500, you know, in the fog, you know, Tim battling Jeff down to the wire. And then all of a sudden here comes Ricky Rudd almost wins the race. They go across the stripe with one car length. You were kind of in the back watching this whole thing unfold, uh, finishing fourth that day. Uh, what do you recall from that race and kind of that finish? What did that mean for a place like this to be able to come off turn three,
1: almost three wide to the stripe? Yeah, I, I think that's what makes that track really a lot of fun. Uh, you, you, you compromise all the way around that track. You can be good in one uh, and not so good in a tunnel. You can be good in a tunnel and not so good in, in one. So you compromise all the way around that racetrack. But any time that I could finish a race and I could either be the leader or I could see the leader, or maybe I was involved in an exciting finish. You never knew. Uh, I felt like I'd had a great day at Pocono, and I, I think I think a lot of guys. I don't think they necessarily like that racetrack. They just tolerated that racetrack. But I literally, I really liked coming there. I liked coming the. I liked coming into that area, uh, some of the hotels around there, and some of the sights and the sounds and the scenes around there. Uh, I just really enjoyed coming. I loved the Mattiolis. They were good friends to Stevie and I. Um, so any time that I could come off turn three and be involved or be a part of or watch, I was a good watcher. See, I, I knew these knuckleheads pretty good. And so I would watch and I would think, was he going to wreck Dale or not? Was Dale going to wreck him or not? Is Richmond going to hit the And, you know, I always wondered at the end of the day, if I'm sitting in a position where I could see what was going on, if one of those guys might wreck the other, and, hey, I'd be like a buzzard. i just come flying in and, and, and get, get the checkered flag and go home. So uh, that, that's kind of how I raced a lot. Uh, a lot of times I didn't have a car good enough to win, but I had a good enough car to keep up. Then I just kind of watched and see what would happen. I'll give you a perfect example. Martinsville, Virginia, uh, 87. I did not have the greatest car that day. Uh, and we come down to the white flag and Dale's leading and Terry's running second. I'm running third and I'm elated. I'm elated. I'm going to run third because I struggled all day. And I go down the back at Martinsville. I bumped Terry just slightly. And I think he was mad at Dale because Dale had almost put him in the wall off turn through two there. And I think he drove in a little hard and he got into Dale. They both spun and I won the race. So I, I, A lot of wins you just drove off and left people and those were exciting. Those were fun races to win. But there was also those days when you just didn't have the best car, but you had the best strategy and it paid off. So I think a lot of races that I finished well at Pocono, it was one of my best tracks. um, was because a lot of times I didn't have the best car, but I was willing to be patient and wait and see what happened
2: patience is key around this place um, we uh, we have we've taken up quite a bit of your time today and I must say this was uh, we've, we've interviewed a bunch of legends in this sport um, this is definitely ranking pretty high in my list and I'm sure everyone else in this call is nodding their head and agreeing uh, thank you for your time today we really appreciate it, man you got it
1: you guys anytime Robert. Robert.